the CP world caters very well to the big bang and that immediate care, slap a tourniquet on, stop the bleed, go, go, go. But at some point, your patient has to get from that big bang to that aeromed. And the, the care they need along that kind of timeline can get quite complex. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Between tactical medicine and aeromed, today's practitioner will have to think about how to connect the dots when it comes to acute and critical care of their principles. Today, we're going to be speaking with Pete Reeve, a specialist paramedic in critical care, currently uh, with experience of very, very hot, interesting environments. We're going to be talking about where that critical care line is and is not, especially for the protector. For those of you who will remember, we've had previous sessions with Chris Zerkovitz and Paul Stewart. And, you know, until now on the podcast, we've sort of framed the dynamic as, oh, well, if you're a full-time protector with medical capabilities and you're in a really, really remote location, then, yeah, you you can be a tactical medic. And uh, when you're in a more established place, then, ah, then you may, might need paramedic skills. And, and actually, Dr. George DeBusk was making the case for including a medical doctor on your team. But this is something different. Critical care paramedic uh, is a very specific form of paramedic. Um, and, and Pete himself has a lot of experience with medevac, um, air ambulance, and, you know, tactical medicine of that variety. Now, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to really understand all of the amazing procedures that he's capable of, but I think it is very, very key, especially when we're thinking about uh, medevac and how on earth, after having patched up a principle, you then remove them to uh, more acute care in a different location. And I guess that's what you, the operator, should try and expect from this episode. How can we arrange it? What should we ask for? Not necessarily what amazing medical skills are we missing, because that is for someone like Pete. Let's get into it and look at the fine gap in between tactical medicine and aeromed. And now, let's meet one of the contributors to the Circuit magazine. Between tactical medicine and aeromed, where EP needs help. Today, we're being joined by Pete Reeve, specialist paramedic in critical care. And we're going to look at this in-between topic. Not quite tactical medic, not quite paramedic, but something a bit more realistic with prolonged field care. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, Pete. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for inviting me. This is uh, quite an exciting opportunity. And for me, because I know that there are strong feelings in this field. I know that on either side of the debate, there are strong feelings. But in between those two uh, goalposts, I, I just wonder what problem are we trying to solve with that prolonged field care aspect? 
So, so I think we're very like. I think the from my impressions, the CP world caters very well to the big bang and that immediate care. Slap a tourniquet on, stop the bleed, go go go. And the repatriation side is also very well catered to with incredibly complex kind of machinery, ventilators, great care. Um, you know, doctors on board. But at some point, your patient has to get from that big bang to that aeromed. And the the care they need along that kind of timeline can get quite complex, and so it's a case of finding ways to deliver that really. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And our EP listener could picture that in in an operation, particularly in a hot zone. Um, but but what about you? Where where does your passion for this come from? So so I've been a paramedic for sixteen years now. Uh, I've spent the last four years working on an air ambulance, and the six years prior to that. Um, I worked on a thing called the Hazardous Area Response Team, which is a part of the ambulance service that is designed to respond to acts of terrorism, whether that be kind of marauding terrorist attacks. Uh, we went through a phase and we have people getting hit by lorries, driving lorries through crowds and CBRN. Um, and also, you know, this summer, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to head out with some colleagues out to Ukraine and deliver some training, um, some med training sort of locally to members of the diplomatic corps. And... Um, we just kind of came across this fact that there's kind of there's a care gap between that immediate kind of uh, stop the bleed, save the life in front of you. But then given the, you know, particularly in Ukraine, given the geography, you're looking at a 12 to 15 hour to 20 hour journey and who's best place to look after the patient there. And, and how do you set that system up and you know, how far do you put your medics forward? How far is necessary? How far is beneficial to the patient? Mm. And, and and that is a tricky one, but let's take a step back. If I'm a, let's say an EP professional, but I really don't have extensive knowledge in this field. Um, what, what should they really better understand about why this is going to affect their job? So I think you're, so let's look at some of the kind of instantaneous interventions. So putting a tourniquet on. And I would imagine that most people listening to this, this podcast have the training to put a tourniquet on and stop the bleed. And that's great. Um, it's entirely the right thing to do to put a tourniquet on immediately, but not every bleed needs a tourniquet, but they're quick. And in a tactical situation, it works really well. But the question is, how long can that tourniquet stay on for? You know, and the answer to that is it depends because it depends on what's happened to the limb below the tourniquet. Is it still there? Because if it's not there, then the tourniquet can stay on forever. But if it is there, we need to think about getting rid of that tourniquet and changing it the way we control the bleed. Um, so, you know, so that's that's one example. Um, but also there are certain medications that we can give. There's a drug called uh, tranexamic acid or TXA that stops bleeding. Uh, and you can give that up to three hours post-injury, which sounds like a really nice window in which to get your kind of your, I'm going to call them patients because that's how I refer to them, but to get your patient to kind of a higher level of care. But actually we also know that for every 10 minute delay in giving it, it's 3% less effective. So the further you can bring your medics forward, the better that's going to be for your patient in the long run. So yeah, I know, you know, people talk about the golden hour and it kind of exists, but actually the more you can shorten that, the, the better treatment your patient is going to get and the better their kind of long-term prognosis and so I think it's, you know, it's having that dialogue between the paramedic and the pre-hospital world and the security world and seeing sort of how closely you can mesh and how close you can get that to the front line and what that looks like is a really interesting conversation. Okay, so 
to give it language not that you haven't done that but but like to, to labor the point in language that an ep operator might really you know use what's wrong with freck for example it, I think it's about the level of intervention that you can offer and, and the speed at which you can do it. And also the experience of the operators that are doing it. Um, again, I've seen many tourniquets applied and I think in 16 years, probably only two have been absolutely necessary. Everything else could be downgraded to some pressure dressings and, and hemostatic gauze. Um, and it's about being able to know, to differentiate which ones you can and which ones you can't. Um, as well as being able to get, you know, some some IV access, some drugs. We know that PTSD is increased if you don't have sort of pain relief medication as well. Um, so for the long term benefit of the patient, I think, you know, the, the higher level of care that you can bring as far forward as possible, um, then the better for the patient all round. And then I guess, are we are we saying that an EP operator could make this journey or are we going back to the idea, especially, you know, over the last few years during COVID people were saying, ah, we should have an MD with us at all times now. And, uh, and, and, and things like that. So who, who's going to do this? Um, it's really, so the MD one is really great because doctors are fantastic as long as you got the right kind of doctor. And I, I, I know that um, Paul, when he was on with you kind of talked about this as well, but just kind of, you need a pre-hospital specialist in this kind of arena. And those doctors are around, they do exist. They work for air ambulances across the UK, um, but they're quite hard. I mean, A, they're very expensive. <laughs> they're very expensive because they're very skilled. Um, and they're quite hard to get as an embedded kind of medic within the civilian world because civilian medical practice doesn't really contract its doctors in that way. So it's quite, it's quite difficult to get. Um, so I think that's the the first element of the question. You know, why not doctors? I mean, if you can get them, great. They'd be, they'd be fantastic. Um, do are there paramedics who can go forward? They do exist within the UK to to an extent, um, and I, you know, within the hazardous area response teams, they're taught to operate within dynamic ballistic environment. But that's not to say they're anywhere close to kind of EP standards with regards to to security awareness. And and I, and I think the question, like, you really probably need to get your medical people involved in your planning stage and kind of have that group discussion about what is our appetite of risk? How close is it feasible to get our medics whilst keeping them, you know, as safe as possible? And what kind of risks are we willing to take with regards to the wellness of our of our client, patient, or, you know, God forbid, colleagues? Um, and I think that's the really complicated picture of, like, how how well can those two teams mesh together? And then, and then finally, I guess it comes to cost as well, doesn't it? Because you can have the best idea in the world, but if it costs a billion pounds a day, no one's going to no one's going to have that in place. No, and 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 then and then taking that further, if I'm a smaller team or a solo operator, you, you talk about getting you know getting to know your med team better. My med team is the back of a little card. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it, it and it's uh, it's something I really don't want to use because it's going to cost me a fortune and. Um, and sometimes I, 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 I've got to feel that that's quite faceless. Um, you know, even phoning the number might cost me some money. Uh, so, 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 how can we balance that, especially for the smaller teams? Um, how can they make better selections, knowing who to call? Um, and 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 then I don't know. How can we entice them to, I don't know, become part of the team before we've even engaged their services? I, I'm just playing out a scenario here. I'm not saying this is the case with all places. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, so that's a, that's a really fascinating question, isn't it? Because, um, and I guess as well in your smaller teams, if you if you bring a medical person on board, you have to leave someone else behind. I get, you know, so at that point, like how high are your priorities of like, how much do we need a dedicated clinician or how much do we need uh, an EP officer with a lot of medical, with a good amount of medical experience? And I know there's the, there's the argument, isn't there, about um, how qualified you need to be to call yourself a medic. And, and I think if you're with a group of people and they rely on you for medical care, you're the medic. I don't, I don't think it really matters what your, your qualifications are. Um, how we entice smaller teams to do that is a, is a really... Uh, a really fascinating question. I'm not sure that I have all the answers to that. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm brutally honest, because if it's this balance between maximising patient care and maximising your EP elements, and, and where do the two of those mesh? Um, what, what about pre-paramedic training? I've heard of pre-paramedic training, but I'm not sure what it is. Um, I would like to see more details on that because I'm I'm not entirely sure how you would define a, a pre-paramedic. I think if, in my eyes, if you so again, it's an entirely personal opinion, but I I think for your for your ultimate patient care, you need to be able to gain intravenous access. You need to be able to give drugs because we want to stop these people bleeding, and we want to give them some pain relief, pain relief, and and if necessary, we want to try and sedate them as well, and just you know wipe the hard drive take them out of it for a little while and just get them somewhere safer. Um, I think those are the things that you need to be able to deliver. Should that be the responsibility of an EP operative with enhanced skills? I mean, I don't think that's a question that I can answer for anyone. I think that's down to an individual company to say, how much do we want to focus on this? Because inevitably, any one thing that you focus on takes away from other skill sets, doesn't it? And, and clearly, I'm going to be biased and say what you need is an experienced medic who's tactically aware and who's happy to come as far forward as your security picture will allow. Yeah. And that, and that, and that's, that, that's, that, that sort of raises another question where, which I can just throw out and I'm not, I'm, I'm loading it. Um, this is just for hot zones, isn't it? Um, I, th I think it's for any kind of, I mean, like my focus is on prolonged extrication times. Like that's, you know, that's my kind of focus. Um, if you, if you, again, you know, we've talked about Ukraine, haven't we? So a 15 hour drive from one side of the country to another, from where you've been injured to where you're going to get an aeromed evacuation. If you lie on a stretcher for 15 hours, you've got your initial injury, but at some point that person needs to eat and they need to pee. Um, and if they lie in the same position, they're going to get pressure sores. Like that's the sort of thing that you need someone trained in those arenas to deal with. And that, you know, do you feel that should be part of your EP's team to deal with those burdens? I'm I'm not sure there's many that would agree, yes, we should be the people to deal with that, or we should be the people to have the extra training in that. And, and I think that's where your medical professional comes in. Yeah, because, you know, uh, uh, we've had people on the podcast, uh, notably even some of my co-presenters, talking about scenarios where things don't work out. And um, people are suddenly bemused that they don't have the massive uh, support that they did whilst in their services um whether it's an injured colleague a colleague that's passed away um these these are these are these are tricky tricky uh, questions um but i guess prolonged e extrication is there not another stage where we need someone to literally patch them back up so that they can 
extricate themselves or are we are we really talking about people who are so far along the line that they they cannot do it um yes so i think there's going to be a, a range of patients so someone with a, a lower limb fracture is not massively medically unwell but obviously they're going to have mobility issues um and and enabling them to sort of leaving them to their own devices to get cross country is quite an interesting challenge isn't it mm-hmm. um but they're they're not totally medically unwell and if we can give them some pain relief and sit them on a minibus with a splint wrap around their leg maybe we, we know that that has been done we know that that has been done um but i think if you've got either more significant blood loss or more significant pain um or you are immobilized for whatever reason then I, I think you do need, you know, a higher level of care than most EP kind of structures are going to have. And I'm, I may be speaking out of turn. I don't entirely know. But I think that's the role of your specific medic for a prolonged extrication. They start with, you know, the kind of patient I see on an air ambulance and you finish with a patient who you normally sort of see in the ITU in hospital. And someone has to transition that care from, one element all the way through to the next. And, and, you know, I can't speak with absolute authority, but I can't imagine there are, your FREC qualifications cover those kind of elements. Um, and for the really seriously injured people, like, do we need to consider um, airway access, front of neck? Do we need to consider ventilators? You know, those kinds of things are really complex and very easy to get wrong and do need a kind of dedicated vehicle, dedicated response. Yeah, and 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 I guess who are you treating? Are you treating a, an ultra high net worth uh, principal who, for some reason, has gone into a hot zone? For some reason, don't know why they've gone there, but they've gone there. Or are you, you know, are you treating someone that doesn't have the money, um, doesn't have the resources? Um, what what if if I may, um, you, your recent experience in in Ukraine, um, could you reflect on s- some of the challenges and and some of the injuries that you? sort of expect people might encounter there um so i think so one of our biggest things i think is um within the within the civilian population like building collapse and injuries resulting from building collapse is quite a significant concern um so in so in particular there's a type of injury known as crush injury where you had a part of your body squished under debris for a significant period of time. And it has the same effect. So it has the same effect as a tourniquet and it stops all circulation moving past that blockage, which means that all the tissue below that point just works, respires anaerobically and produces a ton of waste products. And when you lift the weight off the leg or when you take the tourniquet off, it releases a whole cascade of chemicals into your system and usually completely disrupts your heart and sends you into some crazy arrhythmias. Um, that's the kind of thing that that we would expect to encounter in some of those areas. And, and that is definitely beyond, beyond the remit of a FREC course. Mm. Um, that needs some cardiac monitoring. It needs some, probably some blood gas monitoring. It will need some, you know, some fancy drug usage. Uh, and we basically try and dilute all the all the detritus that is circulating around your system. That I think, looking at Ukraine, that's probably certainly one of our big concerns. Um, 
and the general kind of you know blast injuries so your your primary pressure wave then you're kind of uh, shrapnel then you are blown against you know across to the other side of the room and hit the wall so what's your damage then uh, so potentially again you're looking at not a single gunshot wound to a limb that you can tourniquet and move out but you're looking at quite complex multi-system trauma that requires you know a whole ton of um blood pressure support possibly ventilatory support um uh, pharmaceutical support um and and those are those would be really complex patients to try and manage i mean even just to local hospitals that's quite a complex thing to manage let alone if you're trying to repatriate someone in the first instance um and, and there's the option i guess there's the option to pit stop at local hospitals but you can't like if there's been a big bang the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed with people potentially and, and so you can't guarantee that covers there there's a really good question of like how much of that cover can you provide in a mobile platform and the answer is like quite a lot um but we're never going to replicate a full hospital obviously mm. no and that, that paints a, a very stark picture and and you know it is you know combat combat zone uh so mm. you're going to have lots of percussion and munition uh damage to people and buildings and and that really makes sense um I, i'm i'm wondering then what are your thoughts conversely because let's say there are operators they'll never touch that type of zone they'll never mm. go there <clears throat> are there some principles out there do you think that are overreacting when they say i want a paramedic on my team i want an md on my team uh, on the other side of the spectrum what what could an overreaction look like or uh, after you know last three years we, we sort of found out that hey sometimes even in safe places there are no facilities um but what 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 could the overreaction look like um so so i think i think the overreaction there's a there's a real risk of um demanding a point of injury service that then can't be backed up downstream so you know, one of, so one of the surgical procedures that I can and have performed on the road is to literally cut, you know, from one side of the chest to the other and open it like a clamshell to access the heart uh, and, you know, kind of directly sew wounds up on the heart, give blood, try and squeeze it. Now, that's great, but we need a hospital that can take that kind of patient. Because you've now, you know, you've now got a surgical patient in the back of your ambulance and you're going to arrive in an ED needing blood and surgeons and, and, and all of these things. And I think it's easier. And one of the things we risk as kind of pre-hospital clinicians in these environments, one of the things we risk is taking procedures that look really good and sexy and high level and wanting to perform them and then having nothing to support us downstream. So on our, you know on our first so on our first trip over to Ukraine, it's very common practice for our team to give injured patients an anaesthetic, put them to sleep, and take them to hospital. And and our team were like, hey, let's you know let's take all the things we need for an anaesthetic. And I said, well, where's your nearest hospital? And are they going to be able to receive you? Because unless you're going to pack 24 hours worth of drugs, we can't guarantee we're going to get someone where we need to get them or the level of care we need to get them. Within, within a suitable time scale. And I think that, so I think an overreaction, certainly when I think kind of pre-hospitally or from a forward medical team is doing lots of really cool interventions that you get no support for downstream. And I think that's really dangerous because then you have a patient you've got, you can't do anything with. Mm. I had not thought, I had not thought of that. Um, 
because because I think maybe there's a lot of pressure on a paramedic, isn't there? There's a lot of pressure. Oh, you you must be able to do everything. Um, and uh, and 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 actually, your job, right? I, I'm interested in in your feelings about the way in which you integrate with the wider team, because at least, shall we say, on the television, we see paramedics, you know, save a life, and then the hospital's like, thanks, bye. You know, um, how, how, how's that been for you? Is that is that really, really the case? Uh, yeah, I mean, I spent so it's only it's only since I've been on the air ambulance that I've ever really had kind of follow up on patients. So I spent 12 years of just treating people, handing them over, saying goodbye and then and then not knowing what happens to them. Um, and you just uh, you just develop this sense of like, oh, oh well. No, I did. I did my bit. I think you know. I think the common line is, well, the patient was alive when I handed them over. Yeah. You know, I've, I've done. I've done my bit. Um, it, on the air ambulance, we get we get some more follow up, and that's always quite nice. And sometimes they come back and see us, and that's really lovely. Um, but yeah, you you develop a case of well, like this this bit here. This was my job, and I, and I did my job to the best of my ability, and and we handed over a patient who was alive and in better condition than when we found them, and that's. You know that has to be the goal. I think. Yeah, that must be that must be fulfilling, rewarding. Um, but which 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 I which I think is is then alien if you're in a hot zone and you're spending so much time with them that you're effectively everything. Yeah, uh, and um, and and you know, I certainly I remember in my early days, uh, kind of before I'd hardened, as it were, developing kind of emotional reactions with patients, and then. Yeah, I had one lovely little, I was very new, lovely little old guy. And we had a, a 45 minute transfer to hospital. So got to know him really well and had a little chat and we handed him over. And as he was filling out the paperwork, someone came out and said, oh, your guy's just died. And it was like, oh, oh, that's really bad. Um, yeah, until my colleague leaned over and said, not our patient, we've got a signature. And that was the kind of like, yeah, we did our bit, <laughs> you know, and that's the kind of, I think that's the attitude that you develop. And I'm sure, you know, anyone who's been in the kind of world where, people around them have been injured hurt or you know gone missing for various reasons develops that kind of that hardiness and that emotional resilience i guess we'd call it yeah and i'm I'm grateful that you can talk about it because it's it yeah i mean it's not strictly speaking relevant to the day job of an ep professional to know how you're feeling but i thought it is an opportunity to explore it and and it is it is quite fascinating from a non-paramedic perspective <laughs> um so your background, obviously, you've been in the civilian world, you've been in the air ambulance world, and now you're you're helping in in variety of ways. Um, if we all sat down today and agreed, absolutely, we need more of these prolonged field care specialists. Where are we going to get them? Um, so I I think uh, there's a there's a fairly good mix. Like off the top of my head, right now within the UK, I, I think. You have hazardous area response team paramedics who uh, are very like your normal paramedic is quite good at uh, improvising because no one ever collapses in an open space. Everyone always collapses. They're always about 15 stone and they collapse between the toilet and the bath and then you have to kind of drag them out. And everyone in the ambulance service is very good at, at doing that. Um, heart paramedics have learned to do that in an environment that is it, it's a warm zone. It's never going to be hot. Uh, unless they get their risk, risk assessment wrong, I guess. Um, so it's never at the level of kind of the, the EP guys out there, but they are used to working in a dynamic environment where they are under threat. And a significant number of them have got enhanced care skills 
So they can give ketamine, they can put a surgical airway in. Um, and then you'll also find a group of, uh, it's it's a very common pathway to, well, my pathway is to go from heart onto HEMS. And you, you'll find a significant number of paramedics as well who have, who have done that. Uh, and so have the experience of working in kind of CBRN at height, in water, in, you know, high threat environments. And also... Uh, are capable of sedating patients, uh, intubating them, giving a wider range of, of medications for a different variety of things. And I think those are the, and I would say that because I'm one of them, but I think those are the kind of cadre of people who have got experience of working within a threatening environment, but also that enhanced care skill set. Uh, and I think that's where you get them from. Okay. No, I like, I like that. That paints, that paints a useful picture. Um, but, but is there not a scenario where having one, can be a challenge and i'm specifically thinking of your medical kit um imagine i go to a country you know how do we get your kit with you um so so a pragmatic approach to what you do and don't need is is really important and as we said i i think out of habit some paramedics would like to take more kit than they actually need because they're going to deliver an intervention in the field that then can't be backed up. Um, if you're if you're really pushing the boat out, um, you know, if you have a convoy of vehicles, then you have one that has the capability to put a patient in the back flat. That is that is, I, I, I appreciate that as an ideal, and we can improvise anything across the seats of a minibus or those kind of things. Um, and then I I think it's just it's smart use of kit. It's being able to find kit that you can use for multiple um, different interventions. So the kit that I use to put a hole in the side of your chest to relieve your tension pneumothorax, I can pretty much use that to put a hole in your throat to give you a surgical airway as well. So a lot of the stuff we can double up in different ways and use that quite economically. Um, I, I think probably, you know, certainly speaking to a colleague who's sort of within the EP world, I think probably one of the biggest problems is that um, paramedics and people within the medical profession in general have a desire to help. Like we are helpers. That's why we do what we do. Um, and I think if you have a multiple casualty scenario and you are responsible only for two or three of the multiple casualties, I think keeping them focused on the people that they should be working on and not letting them get distracted on kind of just, but that person over there needs this or that person over there. Needs that. I think that's probably one of your biggest challenges. And that's, you know, and that is a, a training and a discipline issue more than anything else. Yeah. And, and that must be hard, especially if let's say the high net worth individual wants a bandage, but you're tending to someone with a collapsed lung. Um, you know, oh, I want my bandage now. It, it, it's, yes. uh, probably, and, probably... and in the and in the civilian world, that person will get a bandage thrown at their head and they can sort themselves out. But in the, you know, in the EP world, that's obviously a, a, a slightly different kind of set of priorities. And you maybe you have to throw the bandage in other direction. But they, I think those are the things that we that you would find paramedics get their heads turned by because they've spent most of them have been in the NHS their whole lives and it's drilled into you have a duty of care and you can't leave people behind. And you know that's a very hard habit to break i think yeah and and this this then you know you bring up the nhs and and a uk centric perspective and i know that our listeners are from across the world a lot of them are from the states um so in the states there's these emts and i do recognize that the emts vary in the states i am told they vary in their backgrounds um whereas the paramedic in in the uk is a protected term paul very very you know, very, very yep. keen to point that out. <laughs> um, 
but 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 i don't know like i i i obviously you you work with people that you're sure will help you and they are legit and they're not walter mitties and you know i i wonder how we're going to be able to be sure that every sort of prolonged field care paramedic is exactly that nice in-between paramedic and not a paramedic paramedic who will really run away at the first sign of trouble because they've never seen trouble and not someone who's done a lot of freck and a lot of things on their own i i, I mean will there be I mean, an institute to, to refer to or something i i mean there's there's nothing officially currently i mean it's a, there's a project for the future isn't it that kind of the institute of prolonged field care medic i mean that would be an interesting project in itself i i think you have to rely you have to rely on kind of cvs really don't you i think you have to go back through this person's history and just you know you want you would want to see experience of uh certainly working in environments that are dynamic in some sort of way ideally kind of ballistic threat so you know there are there are members of the ambulance service who who are paramedics who do additional training to be upskilled to work in those kind of environments because we recognize that there aren't enough heart paramedics in the country to respond to a, to a big bang and so there are you know road paramedics on ambulances who also have that kind of ballistic skill set um just probably not quite as well drilled as the heart guys because they do it full time and, and they're better at it but i think you know your cv would would want to your well your scan of their cv would want to make sure that they have that kind of um, some sort of experience in a dynamic environment. Um, a, a good, a lot of paramedicine is unfortunately is experienced because it's pattern recognition. It's, you have to have seen a lot of very poorly patients to be able to instantly recognize very poorly patients. Um, and so you, you would want to see like a good chunk of experience in pre-hospital medicine. Um, I, I, and let's not forget the gate, the gate swings both ways. So you, you, you know, there are plenty of ex forces guys who come out and get trained as paramedics. And again, they would be really good in that role. Um, in that they have the kind of security knowledge, they, they have a bit more familiarization with the, or familiarity with the kind of military model of rapid intervention and then a, you know, a Kazivac out or a Medivac out. Um, so I, you know, I would keep my eyes on that as well, but I, I think, for those really long kind of extrications, I would probably, if I'm honest, want someone who's experienced either in kind of pre-hospital critical care or kind of hospital transfers where they transfer a patient from one hospital to another because they have those kind of those higher level skills on what you do for a patient who's been lying on their back for eight hours and needs to pee. You need to put a catheter in, convene, what you do when you need to poo. And these are really boring things, but they're really like it's nursing care. Mm. Uh, and they're really dull and they don't seem very important and they massively are um it, it's it's definitely a challenge i, I would uh, personally I, I i mean i would look for me i would look for heart paramedics with critical care experience if i'm absolutely honest uh but i'm also probably very biased so we probably shouldn't take my word for that and you're also maybe quite rare are you rare um no there's well Maybe my unit is rare, but there's at least there's at least four of me in my unit who have, who have done heart and then moved on to critical care. And I think I think that picture is fairly common around the country. I think yeah, that's not unusual as a as a career pathway. I think that works quite well. And and if I'm looking to integrate them into my team, let's say I, ha I have the resources and I have the motivation, 
Um, will I come up against, I don't know, people within the NHS who, who, who say, well, I will be ready in five years time once I've done X number of service years and, and then I can work in the private sector or will, are there, are there people who are free to uh, work how they like? Um, because I'm, I'm wondering how I'm going to recruit. Yeah. So um, there are, so there's a great thing about, so one of the great things about the NHS is that you, you can work flexible jobs and they're very good at, at kind of flexible jobs. And if you, you know, there are certainly paramedics who work within the NHS, but also work independently. Um and again, they exist and they are probably some of the more motivated ones. Um, and again, I, I think probably a decent a decent range of those will have some sort of forces experience who have then come out and, and done some paramedicine. Um, but yeah, like, again, we're not 10 a penny, but like, they do exist. Mm. And and I mentioned the, the difference between uh, US EMTs and our paramedic sort of protected yeah. term and it just occurred to me that there will be listeners still going oh yeah it's the same thing even though i've said that um would you be able to shed any light on the differences so so i'm not an expert in the american medical system um so i can tell you certainly within the uk there are now sort of three or four grades are within the ambulance service so you start with an emergency care assistant who is trained to drive on blue lights uh and can do minimal kind of intervention so they can uh, do chest compressions they can put on a you know a defibrillator and, and watch for that kind of stuff um, but their clinical scope is quite limited then in some regions you still have uh, technicians so kind of the same name as, as EMTs really in the states um, they have a slightly wider scope of medications they can give but certainly you know when I was a technician quite a while ago we weren't allowed to put anything in a vein so we couldn't get we couldn't do anything invasive essentially so we could give medicines but if it had to go through a vein you would need the next level up which would be a paramedic um, paramedics are, are the sort of uh, theoretically mainstay within the UK uh, IV access uh, airway management with or without intubation depending on which area you're in which is the tube down into the trachea um they can give i said interface access and then just again a, a wider scope of knowledge and paramedic like to be a paramedic now in the uk is a three-year degree and then and then on from that um so every ambulance trust does it slightly differently but with our ambulance trust you then once you're a paramedic you split into specialisms so you have uh so i'm a specialist paramedic in critical care and then you have a thing called a specialist paramedic in urgent and emergency care, and they deal with more sort of primary care problems. So less less your traumatic injuries and more your sort of ongoing infections, uh, skin care problems. The things that you kind of, a lot of them work in GP surgeries, it's that kind of primary care need. Um, so that's how, it, that's how it works within the, within the UK. And there's a great, there's advanced practitioner in critical care, which is a, another step up and there's very few of those but they can do more surgical procedures okay no i i i, I you know i'm thankful that you've explained that and i wanted to labor that because because i thought if i got excited as a as a team leader or a, an owner of an ep company I, I i guess the question was now what you know now 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 what do i do and how do i make an assessment and where am i going to get these people that i'm so excited to hear about um is there still a place for tactical medicine so someone with a gun in a hostile zone but a whiz with a tourniquet i mean yeah it, it, massively yeah it, 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 absolutely and and um 
you know, I, I kind of hammered home the point a bit about, oh, you know, when do you downgrade your tourniquet? But, you know, a tourniquet is absolutely the right call in that kind of tactical environment. And I, it would be incredibly wrong of me to suggest that we don't need tactical medics. I think that's incredibly inaccurate. Um, because I, I think, the, I guess the real question is, because to train a paramedic to be a tactical medic, you would need to give them tactical training and, and weapons training and handling and all that kind of stuff. That takes a lot of time and it takes the focus away from their clinical stuff. The, the flip side is, is the same, isn't it? Your tactical medic, if you want to give them paramedic skills, as I think as Chris was saying on, on the podcast with him, the more you focus on the paramedic side, the, the more your skills fade on the on the EP side. Mm. And, and, I, and I think, you know, the real the real prize here would be to find that perfect point at which you your tactical medic hands over to your advanced practitioner, your kind of prolonged, for, for prolonged field care. And I think that comes down to your planning phase and your discussions between your medevac element and your tactical element. Um, and I think, you know, if you're a person who's who wants to have those kind of uh, capabilities within a team, that's the kind of conversation you need to have early on as to at what point do the medevac guys come in and start doing the more advanced care but but no there's, there's absolutely still a need for your for your tactical medic um because we know that most most of our avoidable deaths in combat are airway compromise and catastrophic hemorrhage and and they happen in minutes and uh, with the best will in the world your medevac unless they're with you when the when it goes bang your medevac element won't be there within two minutes um and in fact the the nato standard is 10 1 2 so you've got 10 minutes to get tactical combat casualty care administered you've got an hour to get your advanced element there which in the in the uk military was mert uh, and then you've got two hours to get to damage control surgery which is great if you're the military and you can fly everywhere if you're a civilian uh, we can do the 10 minute bit <clears throat> we can probably do the one hour bit the, the two hour bit to damage control is the bit where we're going to struggle um, and we just need to support people as well as we can and just get them the hell out of there <clears throat> I like that, and and thanks for being so frank and uh, and, and open, uh, you know, with us because because the, do you know what? I don't think we usually hear this type of advice. I don't think we hear it. Um, we don't meet paramedics every day, so so it's uh, it is it is really really fascinating. Yeah, and I like I you know I again I'm I'm completely aware that I'm very new to this space. I have I have worked alongside the, the police firearms teams in planning for you know deliberate vehicle attacks and and marauding terrorist attacks. But I, you know, I would never say that I'm a tactical medic myself and I'm completely new to the EP world. But I think, you know, for example, patients who are cold don't clot. They just keep bleeding. That's a really small nugget of information. But if you're an EP team and you can carry just a, you know, warming blanket in your kit, in your vehicle somewhere, when your patient, get, when your, you know, principal gets hit, stop them getting cold, they'll clot a lot better and they won't bleed out before we get there. Those are the kind of things that, you know, within the planning phase, that's where a decent skilled paramedic is really useful. You know, because those those kind of things, and yes, you've got three hours to give TXA and stop them bleeding, but if we can give it in an hour, it's so much more effective. And it's the, it's these little nuggets and it, it's how these two industries kind of mesh and provide like amazing patient care. I think that's the bit for me, I've suddenly become animated. Look, that's the bit that's really interesting um, and designing that system is something that I, I love and I thrive on that kind of stuff, as well as doing the patient care itself. Um, and ultimately, I think, you know, the takeaway from this is like, how do we how do we mesh these two industries 
in a way that increases survivability and quality of life post injury for our for our patients um and that's you know maintaining mobility as much as possible preventing psd by giving you know loads of pain relief stopping them bleeding out by keeping them warm and giving them txa and and how do the two how do the medevac and the tactical medic elements work together to like make that work as well as possible that's the really interesting question well, thank you. That's that's definitely a mic drop. And uh, I think I think that's really, really helpful because, you know, one of the things I like to do at the end of these uh, interviews is to say, well, what are the top tips? And those are the top tips. Yeah, so, I think that's it. You know, rewind, listen and, and, and get to grips with them. That just just keeping someone warm. I, 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 I didn't appreciate why that was so good. Um, but uh, but I've I've learned a lot. So 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 I really like that. Excellent. Well, I mean, again, like thanks for the opportunity. It was really it was really exciting. It's very cool. So how can people uh, get in touch with you? Um, what, are you what are you up to, uh, you know, in the next few months and so on? Uh, so so in the next few months, I'm well, I'm busy still being an air ambulance paramedic and, and responding to jobs there currently. Um, uh, some of us from the unit are, again, hoping to get out to Ukraine again uh, imminently. Uh, and we're still, yeah, that's quite exciting. And working with kind of local uh, EMS and fire services and that kind of thing, which will be really good fun. Um, and then, yeah, delving delving more into this world and 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 seeing what it holds for me is quite an exciting thing. Uh, and yeah, for those who are interested or want to tell me that I've got something wrong, then uh, Pete at centreformedical.co.uk is a, is a good place to get me. Fantastic, and and we can we can put that also in the um, the show notes. Yeah, um, wonderful. As 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 well. Um, but yes, well, between tactical and aeromeds. Uh, prolonged field care and why ep should care about it i think what a good topic what an important thing and you know we've said it before there are no entirely non-hot zones anymore obviously there's there's some clearly hot zones but 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 everywhere everywhere is potentially a problem uh, for one reason or another um and this really builds on uh, some great uh, podcasts we've previously done with uh, paul and christian um so 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 i really appreciate uh, you coming on uh so pete thanks very much this has been another fantastic edition of the circuit magazine podcast Well, thank you, Pete. And I should actually say thank you to Joel Bennett for the introduction to Pete. What a what a great find for the podcast. And and I hope you appreciated that he brought things to life in a very easy to understand manner. It's very, very easy for someone in their own specialism to not think about how perhaps the EP uh, professional might feel when hearing about uh, a lot of this work. But but I think fundamentally, there's a, there's a lot of good takeaways. Um, have you planned an effective medevac route for your principal? Have you left it up to a third party? Um, I think uh, in some of the events we do, we often say, well, Imagine your uh, principal goes to Benin. I'm just making it up, but let's say they go to Benin. Uh, you think they are safe because they are using a big brand medevac provider. But then something actually happens in Benin uh, and everyone is calling on the very same and overstretched provider. What do you do? Um, it can it can be as simple as that, but it can also be what sort of skill set are you looking for in your paramedic? And 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 when you're asking for a paramedic, can you really focus on the difference between someone with 
critical care experience and aeromed experience. Someone who is a tactical medic and a paramedic. Yes, we've already covered that in previous podcasts. But I think this is very, very key, especially because previous areas which were considered quote-unquote safe might not be as safe as before. And then truly, there are some areas where things just are unexpected. I know the, the usual thing that we that people say is, well, my principal would never go to such a dangerous place. Why would they be going there? Yet, uh, when we had the previous session focused on uh, Mexico with Hector, thank you very much, Hector, uh, he did indicate that, well, actually, there are some very remote facilities that a principal might want to visit occasionally. Um, so, so, so I guess it's a mixture of that remoteness, uh, the danger profile, but also the uh, plan for medevac uh, as it uh, as it as it happens. Um, on top of that, we're talking about care. And so I really would love to uh, draw your attention to something that the Circuit Magazine is also involved in supporting. I, myself, would be uh, moderating. Bodyguards for Kids, the event virtually held on 18th and 19th of March. So coming up, we would love for you to donate to St. Jude's, the world-renowned Children's Hospital and Children's Hospital Network, uh, which then is your ticket. So if you go and look for all the wonderful uh, things that we're putting out and also Danita and Chris Grow, who are the uh, brains uh, and impetus behind this, have a look at where you can donate to such a great cause through buying a ticket for the event. It's actually directly through St. Jude's website, so nobody outside of St. Jude's touches any of the funds. It is uh, designed to give you virtual classes, networking, and of course, raising donation for those little heroes. Um, that is something that I will be moderating over that weekend, um, and that is something that the Circuit Magazine is very pleased to be uh, a, a media partner for. And now, of course, there's already some great corporate partners uh, for that event, and you know we would encourage more participation. Um, and, 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 and if you would reach out to Chris Grow or uh, Danita Grow or perhaps uh, myself, then we can give you a little bit more uh, you know, information on that because it's, 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 it's really got momentum. So many wonderful people are speaking and are supporting that event. And, and actually, it comes at a very critical time when people are thinking about the wider care Network and and you see what I've done there. I've integrated it with the topic of acute care and critical care. Um, not not so much aeromed, I suppose, but uh, if if not this episode, then when when to when to talk about it. Obviously, uh, in wider news, uh, we uh, have the latest edition of the Circuit Magazine out, but. Looking forward, we are looking and have been receiving, thank you, courtesy of those people who very kindly uh, reached out at the 8th Annual CP Tech Forum uh, just one week ago, uh, but we are looking for some more uh, wonderful articles. Now, it could be testimonials about your work, your life, your experience, or it could be something thematic. You, you, you must notice by now that on the Circuit Magazine podcast, we do try to be thematic. We try to think, hmm, this is a topic that protectors would very much need to know about, um, and, and so we bring the pages of the magazine to life. So so if that's you, which I which I, I know it is, yeah, you're, you're, you're standing around in a, in, a, in a hallway on an operation, maybe you're exercising, maybe you're listening listening to us whilst you are, uh, you know, relaxing on the weekend or perhaps whilst you're at work. There's so many occasions, but that 
person who has something to share, I believe it is you. So please don't be shy. Reach out to John Moss, myself, uh, or Elijah Shaw or Sean West, of course, and we will get that integrated into the next edition. Um, I have noticed some very good videos made by uh, our editor, John Moss, uh, on the YouTube channel for The Circuit Magazine. It's uh, it's really, really a good infomercial, I suppose, as to the new topics. The latest one, of course, is AI, and um, already stirring a bit of debate online. The intention was, can AI impersonate you? Um, people have already uh, sort of talked about, well, is AI going to replace you? But that, but that's not quite where we're going with this uh, version of the magazine. So 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 I'd implore you to to read it and see where perhaps deep fakes, spoofing, and impersonation is a problem, rather than some uh, robot is going to steal your job, which is not at all where we're going with it. Uh, I know I get fan mail every time we say the word robots, all the way back from when we did the interview with Mark Fulmer. So perfectly aware of that. Um, keep uh, the BBA Connect app community going. Uh, the Naba Connector app, uh, the Protector app, uh, is really on fire. Please keep sharing your motivational quotes and photos. It really does make a difference, and it has a very different flavor from, let's say, Instagram, where that's for wider consumption. This is very specialized, and it's really nice to keep um, everything within the community. Um, we have some new members. Um, new members actually reached out to us at the CP Tech Forum just last week. So if you're a new member, welcome. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you on board. One of the key questions was, well, what should I really do as a new member? Uh, and I guess twofold, we advised them, uh, network, and you could start off by simply explaining your journey where you are. You don't have to uh, pretend to be something you're not because everyone was there at some stage, but also uh, consume the content and learn. Because yes, there's a little bit of... Um, lingo i suppose one can learn you can get a flavor of what, what people are talking about um but but there is an awful lot of good stuff out there plus uh you may not have a lot of funds uh for training and so before embarking on costly training it is very good to get uh, a lot of these topics through the circuit magazine podcast and then perhaps think about your own skills gaps and what will improve your career now, but but again, we're not discounting things that are absolutely great fun. <laughs> but, but 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 bear in mind that you may have to prioritize things that are very very useful. So talking about useful, um, absolutely wonderful to see that distinction today between tactical medicine and aeromed. And you know we 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 really are grateful to have Pete uh, on the podcast because he's a bona fide. Uh, paramedic in critical care talking to us and that fits very nice within our canon of uh, work with of course dr george debusk um chris zirkovitz uh, paul stewart and, uh, and 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 all the other medical topics that we have touched upon uh, because yes your principal is most likely to need a band-aid a plaster for, for something on their finger yes however medevac you can't get that wrong so Thank you very much for joining us this week. Um, please reach out to Chris, Danita Grow, or myself uh, for the Bodyguards for Kids event over the weekend of the 18th and 19th of March. Very, very worthy cause for St. Jude's. And, as always, this has been another fantastic edition, I've enjoyed it very much at least, of the Circuit Magazine podcast. You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.